Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're talking about a remarkable memoir from the 1990s that tells the story of one Chinese-American family. On Gold Mountain by Lisa C was published in 1995 and it was a bestseller at the time. In the book, Lisa explains how her great-great-grandfather emigrated from a village in China to the United States to work on the transcontinental railway which was being built. His son, Fong Si, follows, marries a white American and goes on to be successful in business. Lisa spent five years researching her family's history and interviewed nearly 100 relatives to put the book together. But why are we still talking about the book in 2022? Well, it's still making headlines. It's inspired a museum exhibition. It's become a teaching resource and it's been adapted into an opera with a new production planned for May, taking place in the Chinese Garden at the Huntington Library and Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California. This production, produced by LA Opera, was first mounted in 2001. I'd also add that the book is more relevant than ever because it does such a fine job of explaining early immigration and the obstacles faced by the Chinese community settling in America. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, My first question, and I guess I'm asking it 22 years too late, is how did On Gold Mountain get adapted into an opera? Well, let's see. I, I, I love the opera. I go to Los Angeles Opera, and there was one time during an intermission when the then head of the opera and his wife kind of came running up to me and said, we have an idea. And the idea was to create a series of operas that could go out uh, into the community, not be in the, on the main stage, but go out to different places throughout the community that would be about the community in that community. And while this was supposed to be a series of operas that didn't come about, um, later we had another director, they tried again, but now we're actually uh, creating, it's called The Song of Los Angeles, a series of five operas that will uh, premiere over the next few years. And then during the Olympics, when they are here in Los Angeles, all five of them will be mounted at the same time in really unique um, venues, you know, that, that will take visitors, but also locals alike to these really spectacular places um, to learn about our city and um, to experience our different cultures and communities. So what's the actual process for adapting a book, especially a nonfiction book, uh, (laughs) into an opera? How does it work? Yeah, well, um, 20 some years ago, I was paired with a wonderful composer named Nathan Wong uh, and a director, Andrew Tsao. And I must say that Andrew really helped us because, but all, you know, it was always all three of us in the room together. Sometimes it was um, just Nathan and me. I would sit on the piano bench with him. And we just started thinking about what parts of the story really resonated. I mean, obviously the book, as you know, covers a hundred years 
in the history of my family, but we couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> you know, that would have been a very long opera. <laughs> but uh, we decided to focus on the love story between my great-grandparents, Fongsi and Taisi. And so that helped to narrow it down right there. And once you have a love story, that means you have, you know, a, a beautiful aria that involves courting and, um, you know, moments of celebration and moments, right. of course, of sadness. So writers normally work alone. They're famous for working alone. So it must have been great fun to collaborate. It was. And, you know, at that same time, <clears throat> I was curating the exhibition that was based on Ongold Mountain. It was the largest, and to this day, the largest exhibit ever on the history of the Chinese in America. It started here in Los Angeles, and then it went to the Smithsonian in Washington. And between those two projects, um, I completely changed how I write. And you can really see a difference between the books before the opera and the exhibition, and then the books, the novels that I've written after. So, and the first of those uh, after was Snowflower and the Secret Fan, you know, which is, was a historical novel, which really is the book that, you know, made my career take off in this pretty amazing and international way. And what happened was with an exhibition, and this particular one had, you know, fine art, but it also had archival materials, it had clothes, it had all kinds of objects, that you're telling a story in a purely visual way. And then with opera, well, you know, as the librettist, I'd like to say the libretto is the most important part, but actually it's the music. And you're telling a story through the pure emotion of music. And so I took those ideas, you know, telling a story in a visual way, telling a story in a, almost a musical way. And that, you know, and going forward, that's how I, you know, just again, completely changed how I write and how I approach stories. Right. So the book uh, covers multiple generations of your family. In fact, there's a family tree in the front of the book and it's a big sprawling family. Um, how do you narrow down the narrative for the for the stage? Is it to concentrate on that first love story? Well, it is. It's really about the first love story. My my great great grandfather, as you mentioned, he came here to work on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. <clears throat> my great grandfather came and stayed, and he did a lot of the jobs that immigrants do even today. You know, he washed dishes in restaurants, he swept up in factories, he worked in the fields. But by the time he was thirty, in the 1880s in Sacramento, California, he had his first business. It was a factory that manufactured, can I say this, crotchless underwear for brothels. <laughs> you can say that. It's the first time someone's <laughs> spoken about this on the podcast, but go on. And uh, one day into his shop came a young woman who I think of as being quintessentially American. Her family came west on the Oregon Trail in a covered wagon. They homesteaded in Oregon. Uh, her mother died when she was a baby. Her father died when she was seven. She was raised by brothers who were reputed to be quite cruel to her. She ran away from home, couldn't afford San Francisco, ended up in Sacramento. And it wasn't like it is today, where if you're a young woman on your own, 
you can you know, enroll in a community college, you can get a job at Starbucks or what, you know, you, you have opportunities. She had none, no one would hire her. And she ended up in Chinatown begging my great grandfather for a job, selling what we called in our family, fancy underwear for fancy ladies. Uh, they fell in love, one thing led to another and they decided to get married. But I use that term very loosely because here in California, it was against the law for Chinese down to a quarter to marry in this state until 1948. It was against the law. It was against the law in 28 states. And some of those states didn't overturn their miscegenation laws until 1967. So what Fangxi and Taisi did was they went to a lawyer who drew up a contract between two people as though they were forming a partnership my grandparents went to Mexico to get married, and my own parents were only the second couple in our whole extended family to be legally married here. Anyway, my great-grandparents -grand -great eventually came down to Los Angeles. My great-grandfather was a pretty extraordinary man. He lived to be 100 years old. He had four wives in total. 12 children, the last born when he was in his 90s, long before the age of Viagra, so a real accomplishment, and um, did become kind of, I always hesitate to use this word, but kind of godfather patriarch of Los Angeles, Chinatown. So the opera starts with Fangxi as an old man, looking back on his life, and it you know, we pick up with him leaving his home village on the boat in Sacramento. There's even a, a very fun piece when the um, Madame Mathilde and her cohort come into the shop to, and this very funny uh, piece of music, fancy underwear for fancy ladies. And, uh, you know, again, Ticey comes in looking for a job. He hires her. So the story really does the story of the opera really does parallel their uh, real story. The uh, the love story and the the contract or the marriage. I mean, both of them could have got into serious trouble. I mean, lynchings, uh, murders of the Chinese community. You also explain about certain riots and things that have gone on at the time. So. Even just working for a Chinese business was incredibly risky for TC. Yes, it was. And certainly for them to get married, you know, in whatever form it took was very dangerous. This is why, I mean, there are two reasons why they moved to Los Angeles. We had had a terrible massacre here of the Chinese. It's actually 150 years ago. Um, but after that, you know, city fathers felt, and this was at a time of the land boom here, you could come across the country at some points for just a dollar on the train. So, you know, this huge influx of new people to the West Coast, but Los Angeles in particular. And our city fathers realized, you know, this, this whole level of discrimination, the riot, the massacre, this is not a, these are not good selling points. And so Los Angeles was actually seen as a kind of safe haven for Chinese in the West. And that's when our Chinatown here really started to grow and develop. 
But the other part of it is that, of course, they couldn't live outside of Chinatown um, because of all the land laws, you know, um, just as you couldn't get married until 1948 here in California, a Chinese, again, down to a quarter, couldn't own property in the state. And so you, that meant you really had to live in Chinatown. And, and by living in Chinatown, they were a bit more protected, right? Because their neighbors were all Chinese. And it wasn't as though they were trying to live in a white neighborhood, which you know, they would, would have been barred completely. Right. So the, uh, the book was published in 1995. I'm wondering what the legacy of the book has been for you, perhaps within your family uh, and perhaps as a writer as well. Well, there are a couple of different things I'd like to say about that. Uh, you know, when, when the book first came out, we, we had a party, you know, a publication party that was really just for the family. And I have to say, uh, you know, some of the people in my family to this day still don't speak English, even though they've lived here, let's say, 80 years. Um, but I remember everybody was very dutiful and came through the line and bought a book. And then as this evening kind of wore on, I could see little groups of people in the corners of in this, you know, by the stacks of books saying things like, oh, my gosh, look, here's a photo of my mother. We don't have another photo of my mother. Here's a photo of me as a baby. I don't have another photo of myself until I, um, you know, went into the army because I had found photos in the National Archive, you know, immigration type documents that that had recorded my family when they couldn't afford to record themselves. And so people then came back through the line and bought, you know, five, six, seven, eight copies of, of the book. It, it was, you know, again, the first book event for On Gold Mountain and the only one where every single book was bought. <laughs> uh, it was my first book. So <laughs> just that anybody even came to the store was amazing. Right. But how that sort of translated out to the family over the years um, has been really touching for me. You know, there is a tradition in Chinese um, uh, culture that when you're in the afterlife, when you're in the afterworld, you still have all the same needs, wants, and desires that you have here. And so you need to have food, you need to have clothes, you need to have a place to live. I've had several of my great uncles ask to be buried with a copy of the book so that they will have it um, with them in the afterlife. And just what an incredible, you know, just um, so unbelievably humbling for me and such an honor. I think the other thing, um, you know, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, that typically the shelf life of a book is the same as it is for yogurt. So the fact that this book is still um, important today and still read today says something else about it just being about my own family. And the fact that it's used in high schools, in university courses, um, that so much curriculum has been developed around it that speaks to the pertinence of this story right now. And I would say in particular during the pandemic, you know, where we've seen such a rise in anti-Asian hate crimes. And so over the last two years during the pandemic, 
I have been asked by different school systems around the country to do um, like teacher in-service kind of days where, for example, I, I spoke to a group in Texas where they wanted me to you know, talk about this history of the Chinese in America, but also relate it to the issues of immigration along the Texas-Mexico border and uh, with issues of detention, with issues of racism and discrimination. So that what happened in the past is completely pertinent to what's happening here in the United States today and in other parts of the world as well. Yeah, the issue of immigration has only become more polarized, I think. Um, I'm wondering, does the book resonates with your family? Have you heard or did it resonate with other Chinese communities across the state? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I've had, I mean, I've, I wouldn't even be able to count how many people, especially younger people, who have said or written to me um, that they didn't know much about their own family history and that this filled in those blank spots. You know, because so much of what families had to do to survive was either borderline illegal or full on out there illegal, these were not things that were spoken about. I mean, partly because you wanted the, you know, the next generation and the generation after that not to say anything by mistake that could get the family in trouble. But also there was a lot of shame and embarrassment for those things that had happened in the past. So, you know, there are a lot of people who are the descendants of paper sons. These are uh, typically men who were brought in to the United States on false papers as a, a son on paper of an American citizen. And oh, that was completely illegal, <laughs> completely illegal. So it wasn't something that was talked about very much. And you no, know, just even that aspect of the story has filled in the blanks for so many people. Um, and and I, I would also say just even the general hardship, you know, I'm sure in your own family, you know, people don't like to talk about those times that were really difficult or heartbreaking or um, embarrassing. You know, you don't yeah. like to talk about those things. And, and yes. um, then to be able to have that kind of open in a way, uh, it, at least with my own family, like I said, it, it fills in the blanks for a lot of other families. And, and then in China, you know, for so long, there was very little information there about how people left and what their experience was like once they got here. So the book has also done very well over the you know, last two decades in China. It's remarkable how people turn a blind eye to one aspect of immigration and then criticize another. So I'm thinking the transcontinental railroad, it linked one side of the United States to the other. It opened up the West. And it was built exactly. by the Chinese community who were hounded and treated terribly. Well, and, and not just the railroad. You know, once the railroad was completed, those laborers fanned out across 
well, actually across the country, they went into the deep south, but, but particularly here in the west. And so, you know, other railroad spurs, bridges, roads, um, dams, levees, you see that infrastructure here all the way to today. And, you know, most of it built by Chinese laborers. Right. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about how the book is a teaching resource? How is it studied? Well, um, you know, again I, again, I think it would depend on where you are in the country or where you are in the world. Here in Southern California, it's very much, I mean, yeah, well, let me put it to you this way. I know that it's been taught in American history classes, in Chinese American history classes, in city planning classes, uh, in sociology, um, you know, so it, it fits into different uh, aspects of, of life here. But I think in a larger level, if you think of the country or, or the world, it does go back to immigration. And at least here in the United States, we could say that, you know, unless you were Native American, and even they came from somewhere else originally, um, everybody who's here is an immigrant of some sort. You know, sometimes people came willingly, sometimes they were brought here very much unwillingly, but we all came, we all have someone in our past who came from somewhere else. And the details of our day-to-day -day living might be different. I might use a teapot, you might use a coffee pot. Um, you know, somebody might eat lasagna, somebody might eat pozole, somebody might eat, you know, I don't, you know, fill in the blank. So we have those differences that we bring with us, but all of us had someone in our family who was brave enough, scared enough, crazy enough to leave their home country to come here. We all share in that. And I, I think that that aspect is one of the things that's kept the book um, relevant all the way to today. Okay. Indeed, you must be very proud of it. But you've also been busy since then, goodness, writing all sorts of novels. Um, what, what was your, what has been your latest writing project? Well, I think about books for a very long time before I decide this is the one. And I thought I knew what the next one was going to be. I'd been quietly collecting material for about four years. And it was going to, you know, I, I go to every place that I write about, it was going to require a trip deep, deep, deep into a very remote part of China. Um, obviously, I couldn't do that in 2020, not in 2021. I'm pretty dubious even about this year. Anyway, uh, you know, going back to March 2020, there was this moment where I just thought, oh my gosh, my life is over. <laughs> And, and I live pretty close to the University of California in Los Angeles. They have seven research libraries. I've been in all seven. They were closed completely for more than a year. Even now, you have to be a faculty member or a student to go. So I'm not one of those. So the, you know, the seven libraries that I have used so much over the years 
still close to me. Anyway, I, and I don't mean to sound melodramatic, but I, I did from whatever that was, March to October, I just thought, well, my life is over. <laughs> I can't do the thing that I love to do. I, I don't know what, I, you know, I just, I was just hopeless, really. And uh, then there was one day that October that I was walking by um, the, the bookcase where I have most of my research books. And one of the spines jumped out at me. It was, and I don't know why, it was gray with darker gray lettering, reproducing women, pregnancy and childbirth in the Ming Dynasty. I had had that book on my shelf for 20 years and had never opened it. So I sat right, you know, right down right that moment. We were in the middle of the worst part of the pandemic. So, you know, I didn't have anything else to do. I got to page 19 and there was a mention of a woman doctor in the Ming Dynasty. That in itself isn't terribly, terribly extraordinary. There, China does have a history of women doctors going back about 2,000 years. Not a lot of them, but some. But in 1510, when she turned 50, she published a book of her cases. Um, this is uh, the oldest book in Chinese, uh, oldest medical book in Chinese written by a woman. But I'd go beyond that. You know, how many books can you think of that are still in print from before 1510? And by the way, that book is available in English. It's available in many, many languages because many of her treatments are still used today in traditional Chinese medicine. Anyway, how many books can we think of that are still in print from before 1510? You know, the Bible, um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, Beowulf, Mahabharata. But after that, I, I get a little stumped. You know, maybe you could come up with some others. So, and, and not one of those written by a woman. So she was very extraordinary. And I decided, you know, that day to um, write about her. Now, I still couldn't go to China. I still couldn't go to the research libraries at UCLA. And so I put aside um, a little chunk of money so that I could buy books from you, from, from A Books, because so much of what I look for, you know, are books that are long out of print, that are very hard to find, um, that maybe UCLA might have had a copy or they could have found a copy, but I didn't have access to them. And I, I can remember one of the very first books I looked for, um, I did find it, it was going to be like a thousand dollars, but I kept looking and I found one again through you um, that was like 125. And that's when I knew, okay, I'm gonna put my what would have ordinarily been my travel money aside to buy these uh, books that I had no other way to access. Wow, thank you. Um, you're not the only author that does that. Uh, quite a few do it, but um, yeah. it's nice oh, to hear sure. it in action. I mean, I, all those, you know, probably half the books on my research shelf are things that I've gotten from my books. Yeah. But, but in this instance, I, I had to rely really 100% yeah. on um, the things that I could buy online. I often tell my colleagues there is a book on almost, well, in fact, I think there is a book on everything 
good, bad and ugly and mm -hmm. obscure. So many obscure subjects. You'll, you'll find mm -hmm. a book on it from from history. All right. OK, uh, two more questions. So first, uh, first of all, the opera sounds like a lot of fun. How can people buy tickets to the opera for, for the summer? For uh, there are two ways. You can go to the Huntington Library and Gardens website or to L.A. Opera's website. They're both Excellent. selling tickets. OK. And my final question, Lisa, which we ask all our guests, and that is what book or books are you currently reading? So I, I'm reading four. <laughs> Actually, I just finished uh, T. Jefferson Parker's most recent mystery. So we'll, we'll leave that one off. Um, and then I'm sort of divided right now between a, a book called Ladies of the Canyon. It's about these uh, women in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who uh, went into the American Southwest by themselves and did some pretty extraordinary things. You know, they were there long before Georgia O'Keeffe, for example, and, and they, it, they were, they are quite amazing. The other one is just, just new, just released, called Kingdom of Characters. Uh, it's by Jin Tzu. And it's about how um, China, the Chinese language was modernized and how that came about. And then lastly, my husband and I um, listen to audiobooks at night. We, we get in bed, he sets the timer. You know, do, we, do I want five, 10 or 15 minutes? And we turn off the lights, we snuggle up, hold hands. Uh, and listen. And so right now, where we have the collected um, works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and where we started with the very first Sherlock Holmes story, and we're now about halfway through The Sign of Four. And they're read by Stephen Fry, and he's just fantastic. He's just fantastic. But we're, this, is, uh, this is our special treat each night. Wow, that sounds great. Have you got through uh, Hound of the Baskervilles? Not yet. That that came later. That's I believe, uh, isn't that later? Or was that the uh, first one? I don't think no, it was I the first it, one. Yeah. It was? I'd have, to, I'd have to do my research, but I don't think so. I don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. I, I'm not remember. We finished the first one and now we're, I just know we're in, in, you know, about halfway through the sign of four. Yeah. Well, that's a lovely choice of books. Some uh, oh, it's bit fantastic. of everything there. And what an incredible writer he was. I mean, just amazing. I mean, one of the great literary characters um, who just, even from the very first story, is so, is full-blown, three-dimensional, um, witty, <laughs> with, with all of his interesting idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Like a very unique hero and also some very unique villains but he's mm -hmm. got that template where someone shows up at Baker Street with the problem exactly. and off you go immediately, right? It's pacey. Um, so that's all we have time for now. I want to say special thank you to Lisa C, who is the author of On Gold Mountain, the 100 year odyssey of my Chinese American family and many other books besides. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great fun. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And uh, well, good luck with your future books. And uh, well done on, on Gold Mountain, which keeps on trucking. 
Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So you can learn more about the On Gold Mountain Opera by visiting the LA Opera website or the Huntington Library website, which both of which offer tickets. Thank you for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast. And we'll see you all again soon.